Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there's more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Herman Melville. Now let's continue with our story about Herman Melville. Only 33, Melville's literary reputation was in a shambles, and his wife, who was charged with maintaining the household and providing the family meals, frequently had to resort to tea and toast. Just when it seemed that things could not get any worse, they did. While traveling to Nantucket with his father-in-law, Melville socialized with a lawyer who discussed a strange case involving a woman who remained faithful to her deserting bigamist husband, despite him abandoning her and her daughter and turning up briefly after decade-long intervals. Melville eventually turned this real-life dysfunction into a manuscript entitled Isle of the Cross. Although he personally met with editors at Harper Brothers in New York, the publisher refused to print the book ostensibly because of the fear of legal action on behalf of the actual individuals involved, but probably because they no longer were confident in Melville's ability to sell books. The manuscript of Isle of the Cross has permanently disappeared, possibly because it was destroyed by fire in the Harper's warehouse where it was stored. Unfortunately, the same fire destroyed all of Melville's unsold stock, which caused Harper's to charge him to reprint any future orders and deduct the cost from any already sparse royalties. With no prospects for successful publication of a novel in sight, Melville pitched an idea to the publisher of Putnam's monthly magazine, George Palmer Putnam, of a rewrite of the obscure Revolutionary War memoirs of a man named Israel Potter, an American soldier taken prisoner by the British who spends almost 50 years in exile before returning to the U.S. in the early 1820s. Melville embroidered the story with accounts of Potter's interaction with characters like Benjamin Franklin, George III, John Paul Jones, and Ethan Allen. Although the book contained Melville's critical and sarcastic perspective on American heroes and society, it also had an energetic, readable style that made it a modest success. Serialized in nine parts beginning in July 1854, when it concluded in 1855, it was also published in book form. 
Melville was also contributing short stories to Putnam's on a regular basis, sometimes anonymously, as in November and December of 1853, when the magazine initially published Bartleby the Scrivener, the strange tale of a legal clerk who suddenly greets his supervisor's work requests and even attempts to assuage his personal mental distress with the cryptic phrase, I would prefer not to. Not particularly noteworthy at the time of publication, the bizarre behavior of the protagonist and his inability to cope with the demands of modern society ultimately would earn Bartleby the Scrivener status as an American short story classic that was way ahead of its time. Bartleby's refusal to write copy in a rote fashion and his inability to conform to the norms of the workplace have intriguing parallels to Melville's own professional struggles and undoubtedly alienated self-image. Melville was able to publish this and five other short stories in a collection in 1856 that was greeted with mostly positive but cursory reviews. Although the details of Melville's family life are only generally known even today, it is clear that his continual financial difficulties and erratic personality made his household and his relationship with his wife a volatile and occasionally unpleasant place. In fact, this may have been the impetus for a lengthy trip undertaken by Melville, first to Europe and then to the Holy Land, paid for by his father-in-law, who looked upon all such expenditures as an advance on his daughter's inheritance. It was generally felt that the stress and professional frustration that Melville had endured for several years could be mitigated by a lengthy break from both work and domestic routine. Packing off his family to his in-laws in Boston in October 1856, Melville first set out for Glasgow and then Liverpool and a meeting with his friend, now diplomat, Nathaniel Hawthorne. Their reunion was friendly, even warm, but Hawthorne's journal entries, while empathetic, depict Melville as a conflicted lost soul. After several days, Melville set off by ship for Greece and the Mediterranean, leaving his heavy steamer trunk behind with Hawthorne at the consulate and carrying only a simple cloth bag for the remainder of his journey. Melville's friend commented, I do not know a more independent personage. He learned his traveling habits by drifting about all over the South Sea with no other clothes than a red flannel shirt and a pair of duck trousers. Melville's ultimate goal was Jerusalem, but he stopped along the way in Constantinople and Cairo. He diligently kept a journal and was mostly critical as he wrote of the Holy Land as a tourist trap that confirmed his religious skepticism. Melville made his return to Britain through Lebanon, Cyprus, Greece, Italy, and Switzerland. Although the journey was undertaken to rejuvenate Melville spiritually and professionally, his mindset could probably be summed up by his March 15th entry in Rome. This day saw nothing, learned nothing, enjoyed nothing, but suffered something. His last stop in Europe was to briefly visit with Hawthorne in Liverpool and retrieve his steamer trunk. Melville set sail for the United States in early May of 1857. Melville's ninth and final novel, The Confidence Man, had already been published in on April 1st, 1857. Turned in by the author before he left on his European sabbatical, the book detailed a con man's steamboat ride down the Mississippi River with a bunch of other passengers who are satirical send-ups of some of the foremost literary figures of the day, including Emerson, Thoreau, Poe, and Hawthorne. Taking place on April Fool's Day, the absurdist humor and black perspective on American society was again ignored by the reading and critical public. 
Despite some positive reviews in Britain, Melville was so disgusted by the apathetic response to this work that he stopped writing prose altogether, composing poetry alone until the very last years of his life. If Melville's European Grand Tour was meant to transform his domestic life into a positive environment, this effort failed to provide any positive energy. The author, disappointed with his latest professional result and confronted with financial burdens and a family of four children, was immediately plunged back into anger and moodiness. Despite its perception in higher literary circles that it bordered on professional prostitution, Melville now sought to access the lecture circuit as a way to generate income. Unfortunately, this effort was not only half-hearted, the topics chosen— Roman statuary, and travels through the South Seas were at odds with a society on the verge of civil war and a public that wanted a meaningful discussion of the serious issues of the day. One reviewer discussing Melville's presentation on the statues of Rome commented that the audience left the hall, some read books and newspapers, some sought refuge and sleep, some to their praise be it spoken, seemed determined to use this as an appropriate occasion for self-discipline in the blessed virtue of patience. Three years of such efforts yielded so little money that in 1860, Melville was forced to transfer ownership of the deed to Arrowhead to his father-in-law to wipe out his current debt. Judge Shaw then presented the deed to Melville's wife, Elizabeth. While this was probably meant as a supportive gesture, symbolically it could not have had a positive effect on Melville's frequently argumentative and morose outlook. Melville must have been desperate to escape his unpleasant home life, and his loved ones must not have been too disappointed when he decided to accompany his brother, who was the captain of a clipper ship, on a lengthy trip around Cape Horn, ultimately arriving in San Francisco. He stayed in California for about a week before returning home quickly via Panama to New York. Arriving in mid-November, he was informed that Abraham Lincoln was elected president and, like most Americans, presumed civil war was imminent. Melville's desperation for permanent employment now turned to friends and relatives in an attempt to get a consular appointment in Europe. Although Melville actually met with Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner and officially attended a White House reception where he shook Abraham Lincoln's hand, the effort would come to nothing chiefly because Melville's most influential advocate, his father-in-law, fell ill and died on March 30, 1861. Melville was forced to return home before finishing the requisite interviews, and without such a powerful ally, his efforts would have been unsuccessful in any case. Over 40, Melville need not be concerned with actually having to fight for the Union, but in 1863, he and his wife decided to move back to New York City exchanging Arrowhead, which he was unable to sell, for his brother Allen's East 26th Street home. The Melvilles also agreed to assume the mortgage. Herman Melville's return to New York had nothing to do with attempting to resuscitate his literary career. At this point, his family was probably subsisting on his wife's inheritance. 1864 brought the death of Nathaniel Hawthorne, whose health rapidly deteriorated after his return from government service in Europe. Melville had not seen Hawthorne since they last met up during his trip through Liverpool in 1857. Melville's first attempt to publish poetry, Battle Pieces and Aspects of War, a collection of poems about the Civil War, was published by Harper's but sold so poorly that it ended up costing him money to cover the publication costs. Desperate and no longer clinging to the dream of a literary career, successful enough to support his family, Melville again sought government work, writing to a banker acquaintance he had met while in Europe. 
This individual, Henry Smythe, had recently been appointed the collector of customs for the Port of New York and saw to it that Melville was hired. Melville was sworn in as a customs inspector on December 5, 1866. His pay was $4 a day, six days a week, with two weeks vacation and minimal holidays. His annual salary totaled $1,200 in a state where a prison guard earned $2,000 a year and a minister $5,000 plus housing. It was not surprising that Melville's job did not pay particularly well. His duties involved checking bills of lading, filling out countless forms, determining if the proper duties were paid, and ensuring that no obscene or inappropriate cargo was being imported. An utterly mindless position, at least Melville was able to take breaks in his office or sit on a park bench overlooking the Hudson River while composing poetry during any inactive periods. It must have been quite a come-down for the former novelist and member of the New York literary elite. While Melville was probably depressed and unhappy with his new position, Melville's family was delighted with the new job, as at least it would give him something to do during the day and get him out of the house. Clearly bored and frustrated with his lowly professional stature, Melville's alcohol consumption increased to the extent that his long-suffering wife began to seriously consider ending the marriage. Although urged to do so by her own relatives, the reality that divorcing her husband meant renouncing any claims to property, most of it in her own name, must have been daunting. Ultimately, Lizzie Melville would remain as a faithful and devoted wife who managed the household, continued to support her husband by proofreading his manuscripts, and even sewed buttons back on his clothing when he angrily tore them off. The quintessential Victorian spouse who remained with her husband regardless of how bad things got. The hellish atmosphere in the Melville household was underlined by an incident involving the couple's oldest son, Malcolm, in September of 1867. Malcolm Melville was 18 and a clerk with an insurance company and also a member of the New York National Guard. Staying out late with his guard comrades was standard procedure, and Herman Melville would lock him out of the house if he returned home after 11 p.m. On September 10, 1867, he stayed out until 3 a.m., but his mother was awake when he got home and let him in. Although he responded to his sister's morning greeting through his locked door, he did not get up for work and didn't emerge from his room all day. Lizzie Melville decided to wait until her husband got home to deal with the problem. Finding his son unresponsive to another knock on the door, Melville broke it down and was confronted with the sight of his son dead in his bed, a suicide from his guard-issued pistol. Although the exact reason for this act remains mysterious, it is believed that the suicide was meant to hurt his parents, especially his father, who was quite harsh with his son, and also the source of much of the family's stress and tension. Perhaps as a method of dealing with his pain, Melville began working seriously on an epic poem that would take him a decade to complete. Entitled Clarel, its title character was a student who journeys to the Holy Land to restore his faith. The poem would eventually span 18,000 verses, a kind of poetic novel that was typically and probably deliberately nonconformist. It was not popular, and even his wife called it a dreadful incubus of a book. Because of her husband's obsession with its composition and the effect it had on their relationship, especially because Melville's uncle paid for its publication in 1876, most influential literary publications did not even mention it, Those that did typically use words like unintelligible to characterize it. 350 copies were published, only about a third of them sold, and the remainder sent to the rubbish heap. 
Decades later, when biographers began to research Melville in earnest, a copy of Clarell was found in the New York Public Library. Its uncut pages indicated that the book had remained in the stacks, unread, for over 40 years. Throughout this time period, Melville continued to toil away at his customs officer's job. When he began working at the Customs House in 1866, he took a horse-drawn streetcar to work. By the 1880s, so much time had passed that Melville took the 3rd Avenue L, an elevated railway, to his office on the Upper East Side. Because much of a customs officer's tasks revolved around ensuring proper duties were collected and paperwork filed, bribes to the lowly paid glorified clerks who handled these tasks were frequent. Melville was well known to be one of the few completely honest civil servants in this position, even returning cash that was put in his coat pockets when he wasn't looking. Melville would remain in this position until his resignation on December 31, 1885. By that time, his wife had inherited a considerable amount of money from an aunt and other relatives, enough to allow Herman to retire. The lessening of economic stress in the Melville household seems to have improved the relationship between Melville and his wife. However, both parents would again suffer serious tragedy when their second son, Stanwick's Stanny Melville, died in 1886. A sickly child, Stanwix worked as a clerk, dentist's apprentice, coal miner, and even as a sheep farmer. He wandered throughout much of North America before settling in San Francisco, where he eventually contracted tuberculosis and died alone on February 25, 1886. Melville's brother Gainsvoort and mother were also long gone, having both died in 1872. It was about this time in 1886 that Melville began to compose more nautically themed verse, originally entitled Billy and the Darbies, concerning mutiny and the thoughts of a sailor contemplating his execution by hanging. This concept originated from an incident involving Melville's cousin, Gert Gansvoort, a naval officer who became embroiled in a controversial court of inquiry that ultimately sentenced three seamen to death. According to Melville's relatives, the hanging of these individuals haunted Gansvoort for the rest of his life. After Melville began writing this work as a poem, he decided to add a prose introduction. Eventually, this would swell into the 350-page novella, Billy Budd, Sailor. Although essentially finished in rough draft form, Melville would spend the rest of his life on the manuscript, assisted by his wife, who provided edits, wrote over some of the fainter script, and added interpretations of what she thought her husband intended. The manuscript containing the tragic story of an innocent young sailor who was hanged as a victim of circumstances was ultimately placed by Lizzie Melville in a tin bread box where it remained unpublished for over three decades. From the time of his retirement in 1885 until his death in 1891, Melville tinkered with a manuscript of Billy Budd and composed the occasional poem. Although he spent a great deal of time walking the streets of New York, Melville essentially dropped out completely from the literary social set, even politely refusing efforts to join various clubs and associations. Never particularly healthy, Melville was plagued with numerous ailments in his old age. Perhaps symbolically, he was stricken with arthritis in his hands, making writing literally painful. His last two years also marked by successive attacks of erysipelas, an acute skin infection stemming from streptococcus. This condition successively weakened Melville until he died from heart disease on September 28, 1891. Melville's wife would live for another 15 years, Long-suffering during her marriage, she remained devoted to her husband in death. Serving as literary executor, she did her best to keep his limited reputation, a marginal cult status, alive. 
she quickly sold their 26th Street Manhattan home and turned her subsequent apartment into a Melville shrine, recreating his writing study and constructing a library filled with his books and formal portrait. Unfortunately, Elizabeth would not live to see the great Melville revival that began in the early 20th century. This movement can literally be traced to one man, a Columbia University English professor named Raymond Weaver, who first published a very positive magazine article in The Nation magazine, and then began work on a definitive biography after discovering that there was literally nothing available about Melville himself. The result was the 1921 Herman Melville, Mariner and Mystic. Although the book would perpetuate some inaccurate aspects of the author's life, especially that he completely withdrew from literary life after his prose period ended, it was popular and began an academic examination of Melville on a large scale. Weaver also discovered and helped publish Billy Budd for the first time in a 13-volume retrospective of Melville's collected works that appeared in 1924. Various literary heavyweights would weigh in on Melville throughout the 20s, including D.H. Lawrence. In 1945, an organization, the Melville Society, was formed to examine and research the author's life and works. A biography of the writer was a National Book Award winner in 1951. By the 60s, Moby Dick was uniformly accepted as an American classic, and even opinions about Melville's poetry were being revived with the author now understood to be one of America's greatest literary figures. Such a stature stands in great contrast to Melville's professional and personal life. Frustrated and unhappy, he was frequently unpleasant to those who had the misfortune to live in the same household. It was only the Victorian mores of the day that probably preserved his marriage. His wife tolerating his various personality quirks and lack of professional success out of a recognition of his talent and willingness to persevere despite popular indifference and critical indignity. At the time of his death, Melville's hometown of New York was already making the transition from horse-drawn vehicles and muddy streets to a modern metropolis of glass and steel. Although the author would live to see the beginning of America's modern age, his work was too far ahead of its time, and he disappeared long before the literary world caught up and acknowledged his iconoclastic substance and style. Melville's Moby Dick was recently ranked 16th on a list of America's greatest novels, but in his lifetime, the author only received royalties totaling $556.37. Perhaps the frustration that dominated Herman Melville's life was that he understood that this was the only earthly reward he would receive before his belated immortality. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about Herman Melville. Much of the information for this podcast came from Melville, His World and His Work by Andrew Del Banco, and Herman Melville, From A to Z by Carl Rollison and Lisa Paddock. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. 
Also, rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.